WDBM East Lansing. The impact. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizel, and this is your weekly newscast. We first go to local entertainment reporter Audrey Matus for a recap of last weekend's Life in Color event. The Lansing Center transformed Saturday, January 17th, from its usual conference room stiffness into an electronic dance hall housing thousands of eccentrically clad youth. Life in Color is a self-proclaimed world's largest paint party that started in 2006 and is a global traveling electronic music event that hosts over 200 concerts annually. This year, the headliner was Billboard-topping American DJ Diplo, who has collaborated with some of the biggest names in pop music, such as M.I.A., as well as fellow electronic artist Skrillex. Accompanying the nonstop pulsing music was a technicolor atmosphere consisting of aerial acts, LED screens, and the famous paint blasts, where the onstage performers doused the crowd with neon paint from fire hoses. To find more information about events at the Lansing Center for this year, go to lansingcenter.com. For your local entertainment, I'm Audrey Matus. Impact News reporter Sarah Torrico has been following key developments on the Keystone XL pipeline. After a bill to approve the Keystone XL pipeline recently passed through the Senate, a floor debate is set to take place in the next two weeks to discuss the bill as well as other energy issues. The debate will offer potential presidential candidates the opportunity to promote their own energy policies. During the 2007 floor debate concerning the energy crisis, many lawmakers were troubled by the U.S. dependent on imported oil. But now the U.S. is set to become the biggest producer of gas and oil. President Obama has presented a series of regulations for the Environmental Protection Agency to further limit greenhouse gas pollutants. Republicans fear that this will lead in a drop in jobs. If the amendment to create the Keystone Pipeline fails by Obama's veto, it could still return later this year as a standalone measure. With National News, I'm Sarah Tirico. Impact News reporter Mustafa brings us a local development on marijuana decriminalization in East Lansing. The city of East Lansing has announced that the ballot initiative to decriminalize marijuana possession in the city for people 21 and over has been moved to the upcoming May election ballot. Originally slated to come before voters in November, the initiative was moved up to the May ballot after the state legislature voted to send a sales tax increase to voters. The recent killings at the Charlie Hebdo headquarters, a satirical magazine that has been depicting the Prophet Muhammad as a cartoon, has the international community discussing where freedom of speech ends and where oppression begins. The writers and editors of the magazine stand by their right to freedom of speech as they continue to depict Prophet Muhammad on the cover of their magazine even after the attack. Pope Francis responded to the attacks with a statement released late last week. There is a limit. Every religion has its dignity. I cannot mock a religion that respects human life and the human person. The Pope also stated that one cannot offend, make war, kill in the name of one's own religion, that is, in the name of God. To kill in the name of God is an aberration. You can find around-the-clock coverage on all student and community topics at impact89fm.org. This has been your weekly newscast. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizel. Up next, Exposure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure.
welcome. I am your host, Quinn Hoffman, and you are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Tonight we're doing a kind of a follow-up to a show we had a few weeks ago about uncommon majors at MSU. It was a pretty interesting show we had on philosophy, gender studies, neuroscience, and others. So for this week, we shifted our attention to the clubs at MSU that maybe not everyone has heard of. Tonight, we cover Kendo, League of Legends, Acapellas, the MSU Jedi Council, and more. So we're going to jump right into it. Here's my first interview with the president of the Underwater Hockey Club, Colleen Anthony. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about underwater hockey. We all, we all know hockey, but underwater hockey, I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard of. What's this about? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a crazy sport. Um, most people, when they hear underwater hockey, think that we have like large hockey sticks, normal size in the water, but the stick is actually only a foot long. It's about the size of a ruler. Um, and we wear snorkeling gear, so uh, a water polo cap, a mask, a snorkel, fins, and a protective glove on your stick hand. And basically dive right to the bottom of the pool and play hockey on the on the bottom. Yeah, you wear a protective glove. Do people get hit with these sticks? Um, you get hit with the sticks, and also depending on uh, the material on the bottom of the pool, it can kind of cut your hand up. So if it's grainy, it kind of just protects your hand from getting scratched. Um, how many people are in this club? Um, at Michigan State, we have about thirty members, which is the most we've had in a couple of years, which is awesome. Um, and there's a number of teams around the country. Um, our closest friends, I guess you could say, is University of Illinois, and they have about 20 to 25 members on their team as well. Okay, and so you guys will travel? You play each other? Yeah, we travel for tournaments. We go uh, to Canada, we go to Ontario a lot, or we go to Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Ohio. We kind of travel around the Midwest, and then every summer in June, there's a national tournament, uh, and that's anywhere from California to Washington, D.C., there's tournaments in Florida. We usually go to a tournament over spring break, which is pretty cool. Wow. Um, how, how does our team typically do, by the way? Um, based on other college teams, we do pretty well because there's college teams, but there's also just like club teams, like Chicago is a club team, so you know anybody can play, adults okay, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so out of the college teams, we're probably one of the best. Um, at Nationals, they have three divisions, A, B, and C. Uh, we usually place near the top of the B division, uh, we have usually win second or third place. So that's we do pretty well. So does a game of underwater hockey work essentially like hockey, but you're underwater? Um, sort of. So there's no goalies. Um, the most common formation is three forwards and three backs. We call our defense backs. Uh, so it's six on six. Um, but, I mean, there's different formations and strategies I've never played ice hockey, so I'm not really sure um, the similarities. Um, but, yeah, three forwards, three backs is our most common formation. So there's no goalie. Is is the net the same size? I mean, what is the net? It's actually like a six-foot-long, like a trough kind of. So there's like a small incline, and you have to kind of flick the puck into this little trough that's at the bottom of the pool. Okay. So how how deep is the pool typically? Uh, well, we practice at I Am Circle, so that starts at, like, 4 feet and goes down to 12. Um, but when we go to tournaments, it's usually a flat surface the whole way, about 6 to 9 feet. So it's not super deep, 
Um, but you don't want it to be too shallow because then it's hard to stay on the bottom. So six to eight feet is ideal for the depth. So then uh, you have to, you have to, you're wearing snorkels, right? Yes. So you have to uh, go down to, to play, but you're going to run out of air. Yeah, so you still have to hold your breath. And the point of the snorkel and the mask is so that when you're on the top of the water breathing, you can still watch what's going on and then dive down as soon as you see a play going on or you see your teammate needing air. Uh, so, yeah, you do have to hold your breath quite a bit. Are there, are there any other uh, unusual things that maybe people might not expect about underwater hockey that you let us know? Um, yeah, technically it's a non-contact sport, which is surprising because hockey is usually pretty physical. Um, so you're technically, you're not allowed to run your body against anybody else. Um, you can't flick the puck near somebody's face. That's a foul because the puck is three pounds of lead in a plastic casing. So it slides on the tiles of the pool. Uh, so if you get hit in the face with a puck, it, it can, you know, if you're wearing your mask, it'll cut your face. Some people have broken a nose if they get hit there. So, um, and then there's stick fouling. You can't whack people like with your stick. Um, but even though it's non-contact, it, it gets pretty physical. I mean, you people get pretty aggressive. Uh, can you can you tell us about how the to- tournaments work? Yeah. Um, so usually the games are um, two halves, usually 8 to 12 minutes, depending on the tournament. And in any given tournament, they usually do like a round robin. So you just play every team, and then they seed you, and then there's playoffs, so you kind of play for first place. Uh, so, you know, at some tournaments you'll play 10 games in a day. So... It's really tiring, but if there's a, if it's a two-day tournament, you'll play maybe five games one day and three the next day. But uh, you know you don't just play one and then that's it for the day. You're constantly, constantly playing. How long have you been a part of the uh, underwater hockey club? Uh, this is my fourth year. Are you a part of any other clubs? Um, I'm part of Ski Club and uh, the MSU Marketing Association. Okay, is is underwater hockey your favorite club? Yeah, it's definitely my favorite. It's I like it because, well, the sport is kind of crazy and unusual. And I was a swimmer in high school, so it kind of keeps me in the pool and doing that kind of stuff. And it's just kind of a good way to, like, you know, de-stress with all classes and work. You know, it's just really fun. It's good exercise. What is your typical uh, recruit? Uh, how what, what year are they typically? Um, I mean, we get all years, but mostly freshmen and some sophomores. So we recruit at participation, but we also usually paint the rock and then hand out flyers there. And usually all the guys are standing out in their Speedos, so it attracts a lot of attention. So, mm-hmm. you know, people notice us. So if uh, somebody's listening to this and they're debating with themselves and they want to, they're not sure if they want to sign up for the club or not, uh, what, what would you say to them? Um, I would say you can check out and get more information on our website, which is MSUUWH.com, and there's lots of videos on there because most people don't really get an idea of what it's like until they watch a video. Um, and they can also just come to practice and try it out. We have all club gear, so they wouldn't have to buy anything. Um, and we let people practice for two weeks before we have to have them uh, pay dues, which are 30 per semester or 50 for the year. So if they just come out, we'll teach them how to play. You don't have to have any experience. Most of the people that are on the team uh, don't have any experience at all. We've had some people that were swimmers and some people that were not, but because we were fins, it's not really a big deal because everyone pretty much starts off on the same page. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in, Kylie. Thanks for having me. The next club I interviewed was Kendo. Not all of these clubs are going to be sport clubs, but Kendo is certainly a sport just as much as underwater hockey. 
but I did get the sense that a lot of people might not know exactly what kendo is. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Right now I'm sitting down with Ron Fox, the staff advisor of the Kendo Club here at MSU. Welcome, Ron. Hi, how's everyone doing? Um, so can you tell us a little bit about kendo? It's uh, a really old sport, if I'm... Uh, if I know what I'm talking about at all here, but uh, I don't think a lot of um, Americans really know what it is. Kendo means the way of the sword. It's a Japanese martial art. In its present form, its origins go back to about the 1600s. The best way to think about it is is Japanese fencing. So we fence with bamboo uh, sticks that are supposed to emulate the Japanese katana, the Japanese sword. Okay, that's like the uh, samurai sword, right? Exactly. Okay, um, so you said it's pretty similar to fencing. Uh, is is there, is there like a point system? There are points. The major difference between most of the fencing styles, probably we should say something about the fencing styles. There are several fencing styles. There's a foil and epée, which are both thrusting styles, and then there's also a saber, which is a, a cutting style. So kendo is all cuts, and or essentially all cuts. There are... The targets are the top of the head, the wrists, and the torso. Those are all cuts. And then there's also one thrust, a thrust to the throat. How, how popular is this club at MSU? How many, how many members do you have? We have about 15 members this semester. Uh, are, are there dues or anything? Do you compete? There are dues. We do compete. I should also say that there's also a class that uh, we run called Kinesiology 102M Introduction to Kendo. That picks up from 30 to 40 students per semester. How many? How how common is this among other universities? You say you compete. Who do you compete against? Well, we compete in open competitions. We don't generally compete against other universities. There aren't collegiate leagues like like the Big Ten, for example. So, right. we will typically do two or three competitions per year. We just came off a big win at the Midwest Kendo Championships, where we took both the individual and the team championships, which uh, is something that's very rare for universities to do. Because again, we're going against open competition, including people that are on paper much, much stronger and more experienced than us. So you said it's the the art of the sword. Is the idea of kendo to emulate this ancient samurai kind of fighting style, or is it a lot more modern and adapted now? It's grown a little bit away from the actual physical use of the the sword. Um, I think what I'd have to say is the purpose of kendo is it's important to talk about the purpose of kendo the purpose of kendo is uh is development of your body of course development of your mind development of your spirit and to be able to pull those all together so the piece of of swordsmanship or sword play that kendo can reproduce is this placing you in a situation that's close to life or death you know fail or succeed and you know how checking how you as an individual will react to that situation and improving how you react to that situation. And from that, you learn a lot about yourself, and you learn a lot about how to interact with other people. Would you say it is all that close to uh, uh, the original uh, art form of the samurai sword? Physically, no, but I think psychologically, yes. So you use these bamboo swords, wooden swords? Yeah, they're swords that are made of four long slats of bamboo that are have a leather cap on the thrusting end and a leather grip. Uh, There's a string that runs along the back of the sword, and so the edge, the cutting edge, is is the side opposite that string. Okay, so if you hit them with a side with a string, it doesn't count. That's right. So 
the elements of a point in competition are to make contact with a valid target area. They call that a datotsubui. It means a, 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 a spot that can be struck with the, with the correct part of the sword, and that's called a datotsubu. The correct spot, the correct part of the sword, or the sweet spot, the best cutting edge, is about uh, one third of the way in from the tip. So if you're much off of that, that's also not a point. You also have to demonstrate what they call ki ken tai noichi. Ki means spirit, ken is sword, and tai is your body, and ichi means one. So your your strike has to show that it's all together in that respect. You have to do this in what they what is described in the rule book as a logical posture, which means you can't be like bent in half and or, or bent over. You you really have to have a good posture when you strike, and you also have to show what is called zanshin, which means a continuing mind. You have to show that things didn't end with the strike; that you're continuing to be alert and to control your your opponent after the strike. So there's a lot of like formalities, kind of pomp to it. Well, there's formalities. I, I wouldn't call it pomp. It's really pretty simple. You when you square off with a partner, you give a, a bow to them. They bow back. Um, in competition, then you would move to a start line and then go to a, a kind of a squatting position called songkyo. And then when the referees, when the judges say to begin, you just stand up and start fighting. And when you're done, you basically reverse that. From the small amount of exposure that I've had to this kind of uh, a martial art, uh, I did notice there was possibly some verbal components. Is there anything? Yeah, there's a lot of yelling, as called so-called kakegoi or shouting. Um, yelling is one way to demonstrate your key, demonstrate your spirit, demonstrate your your um, your 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 spirit. It's called kiai. Um, I think other martial arts have it. Kendo probably has it more than than most. There probably are two types of kiai that you see, or two types of shout that you'll see. They're, they're shouting that will happen prior to the strike, and that's kind of to gear yourself up and get yourself going, and and to kind of suppress your opponent's will. Um, the thing you, if you watch kendo, say on YouTube online, you'll see that typically, not always, typically your the partners swords are pointing at each other's throats. So you've got this thing pointing at your throat and you have to get yourself enough courage to go in and, and enough confidence to know that that's not going to stab you in the throat as you attack. So that's part of that. Uh, then there's also uh, the the yelling that you do when you strike at the actual point of the strike. That's the that's that's twofold. One is the key part of Kiken Taichi, the spirit part of, of Kiken Taichi. And the other is we want the world to know that what we struck was what we intended to strike. So the kiai then is the name of the of the point area, the name of the target area. Um, so if, for example, I'm striking at the head, the men as it's called, and somebody blocks and in their blocking I manage to strike their wrist accidentally, their kote as it's called, my kiai of men says that was an accident. So that's not a point. Okay. Because of... Uh the kinds of posture that you were mentioning and this kind of yelling that goes on. So there's, there's judges that kind of uh, score these kinds of things. Would you at all uh, put this in the same category as, you know, something that like uh, maybe, maybe a gymnastic or something where judges uh, measure form? And well, that's a, that's a good question. The, the difference is that rather than having a, uh, a scale, um, what you have are three judges and, at any encounter that each ju- that a particular judge feels is a valid, a valid point, the each judge will indicate 
the competition, the, the fighting continues to go unless at least two judges agree that the same person made a point, uh, at which point you stop and the point is awarded. I should probably say that kendo matches, there's a really high level of concentration, a really high level of nervousness if you're not careful because the first person to get two points, they win. Kind of on, on an ending note here, uh, there I've also seen some things that uh, might not be kendo but involve the katana, the, the samurai sword, um, and that's when they use a real one and they, they cut um, some sort of uh, wooden or maybe bamboo. Uh, is that involved with kendo at all? Uh, kendo doesn't do that. that. That particular test cutting, as it's called, or is called tameshigiri. There are a few schools of iaido, a sword drawing art, or iaijutsu, or batojutsu. Both are, those are all similar names uh, that do that. Uh, the one that's probably most common is... Um, is Nakamura Ryu or Nakamura style and uh, uh, Toyama style Iaido. They, they do that a lot. There are also, I think, some styles of Kenjutsu ancestors to Kendo that do do Tameshigiri. If uh, somebody's listening to this and they perhaps want to get involved or uh, at least want to know more, what can they do? Well, they can show up to one of our practices. We're pretty informal about that. We try to limit new members to the first few weeks of each semester so that we can move new members you know, through the instruction uh, together. Uh, there's no, you don't, you don't have to have any experience to join the club. You can come in as a complete beginner. Most of our members do. Uh, our, we have a website, kendo.msu.edu. You can go and look at that. We have a little bit more about MSU Kendo Club on the website and uh, practice hours as well. Thank you so much for coming in, Ron. My pleasure. Next, we go to Impact reporter Daniel Razel with the MSU Jedi Council. Not so long time ago, in a room right here on Michigan State University's campus, Star Wars fans gathered together to form the MSU Jedi Council. At a typical Thursday night meeting, as described by Council President Eric Dudek, one can expect the Council to be discussing a variety of topics involving the intergalactic saga, followed by a movie screening. Well, uh, so we started uh, last year, we started doing movie nights, where we decided, okay, this... Uh, day of the week we're going to watch a movie together. And Tonight's usually, choice was neither uh, from the original Star Wars trilogy nor from the new Star Wars trilogy and not even the long-forgotten holiday special. Night screening, the 1996 live-action animated film Space Jam, featuring classic Looney Tune characters like Bugs Bunny and Pepe Le Pew. Hello! A little surprise for you, my friends. <laughs> Prior to the screening, the group discussed plans for future meetings, including video games. Got, um, so I'm an Xbox. I got the DLC for Battlefront 2. So I have like, you have like Pit Bisto and the rest movie suggestions. And let's just right now we'll decide what we want to do next week, and then Zach and I can figure out Pulp Fiction. Yeah, we're So do we want to do Pulp Fiction next week, and then Pulp Empire? And even plans to get other clubs involved. So uh, game night with the board game club is a plan. Maybe we'll invite like the Doctor Who guys and the Quidditch people as well. And the chess guys probably want my go. We'll just invite everybody and see how that goes. Um, kind of All while council secretary yeah. Zachary Johnson diligently types notes. Okay, so authenticated by a mock gavel delivered by President Eric Dudick. Awesome. All right, the council has decided. 
While I was in the presence of MSU's very own Jedi Council, I couldn't help myself but ask a few of the council members a classic Star Wars debate question. Who shot first, Han or Greedo? Han Solo. Oh, Han. Han. <laughs> oh, definitely Han shot first. Han Solo definitely shot first. No question about no it? No question about it. Yeah. It, was, it was a complete oversight to edit that out later in the movies. It just looked funky. I even learned about a new movie order to watch the first six Star Wars films in, the Machete Order. So one of the movie orders that we started watching at here, and I really enjoyed it, is called the Machete Order, where you cut out episode one, and you just watch. So you start out with episode um, four, so A New Hope, and you watch episode two, Empire, and that's when you get the big reveal. And spoiler alert, everybody, uh, Darth Vader is Luke's father. And then you say, okay, well, how did Darth Vader become turn to the dark side? So then you watch episode two, where you, know, you see him friends with Obi-Wan, episode three, where he has that that turn and becomes evil, and then you watch episode six as the finale for the whole thing. And at the end of the day, the Jedi Council is really like any other club here at MSU. About our interests. And I think that's really cool that if you come to a group like this, and that we have groups like these, that people can learn that it's okay to express who they are and express the things that they enjoy a lot. For more information on the MSU Jedi Council and how you can join, email starwars at msu.edu or visit the group's Facebook page at MSU Jedi Council. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizal. So this next club, some would consider a sport, and in their defense, it's recently become more popular than baseball by some standards. Enter the League of Legends Club. Right now, we're sitting down with Sean Irwin, the president of the League of Legends Club. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. So, League of Legends. Um, I feel like most of our campus knows what this is by now, but um, some people wouldn't even know what it actually is. Uh, it's a video game, right? Yeah. Computer game? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was recently looking around about the game, and I had heard that it was more popular than America's pastime baseball. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a fact. <laughs> yeah, the last uh, World Championship had more concurrent viewers than the World Series did. My God. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is League of Legends? Uh, League of Legends is an online uh, MOBA. It's a multiplayer online battle arena game. Okay. It's usually played five on five, and it's just a great way to get together and play. Okay, cool. So, uh, what are some uh, defining characteristics of for somebody who may might not a have played the game or be like uh don't really know what a MOBA is like why why is this game so popular um I think it's really popular because every game is completely new so the old game is gone you lose whatever it doesn't matter you start out a brand new game with five new guys on both sides and you just uh have a chance to kind of redeem yourself okay um yeah what what is it what is it like so you said there's five guys each yeah. side and it's like a fighting kind of game? Yeah, so there's um three lanes that you can go to. One person normally goes to the top lane, one to the middle, two to the bottom, and one stays and roams around. So that basically makes it so you're not only playing five-on-five, five, but in a lot of cases you're playing one-on-one on one or two-on-two two in the same game. Okay. And what I really like about it is you can do really poorly in your lane, but you can still come back and win the game because of your teammates. All right. Um one of the things I've heard about this game is that there's a very high learning curve. That a lot of people will come into it and uh, 
their team will hate them for quite quite some time. Uh, what's that about? Um, well, basically how I see it is it's a really easy game to be okay at. It's a really hard game to be really good at. Okay. So if somebody's really good and they're playing with somebody who's kind of new, they could get easily frustrated. But we don't really get frustrated at League Club. That's one of our rules okay. that I like strictly enforce. <laughs> okay. Um, how many how many people are in the club? Um, in the online Facebook group, we have about 400 members, but we have probably a little over 100 active members who come uh, at least once a month to the league club or come to the tournaments. And how often do you meet and how often are these tournaments? Um, we have one meeting a week every Thursday, 7 to 11.30 in the engineering building, 13.45. Um, we have five tournaments this semester. Three of them are League of Legends and two of them are Hearthstone which is a completely different game. Right. I'm not going to get into that. Got it. But, yeah, so um, January 29th, we have an ARAM tournament, which is all random, all middle. So that's a pretty fun tournament. You don't have to be skilled at it to win. I've seen people who are, like, very new to the game win the tournament. Um, February 28th, we have a solo queue tournament where you're put on a random team. And April 18th, we have an arranged tournament where you play with five of your of team of five. So... Because it's an, a digital game, like an online game, um, I'm kind of curious about meeting. I mean, uh, you said you guys meet like what once a week? Once a week, yeah. So when you meet, do you play together or do you talk about things? Because I feel like you could do that online, right? Yeah, but I like the atmosphere. So you come in, there's like 60 to 80 people in the room at one time usually. So then we just we split up and we do five people versus five people. And it's a lot of fun because... In normal games, you can't. There's no voice chat to talk to the other team, but if you kill somebody, you like, you know, you yell at them. And you're right. like, yeah, what's up, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. So what are the what are the tournaments like? Uh, you just gave us a few, but uh, is it is it like your meetings where there's uh, you're in a room with a lot of computers or? Yeah, it's uh, our biggest tournament we ever had was 20 teams, so that's five players on each team. And it gets really competitive in the uh, arranged fives tournament, which is the you bring your own team and yeah, it's because you practice with each other and stuff and make sure you're uh, you communicate well and stuff. But the other tournaments are more like the club meetings where you just yell at each other and it's it's just exciting. So uh, how how would this this game compare to other other games that are out? Like I, I know a lot of people know of like Call of Duty and things like that. Um, is this game more popular, less popular, more cult following? Well, this game right now is the most popular game in the world. And it's it's different from Call of Duty because some people might get mad at me for this, but you need a lot more strategy in this game to win. And in Call of Duty, you at least an average, average player just runs around and shoots people, right? And just tries to get kills. But in this game, it's not all about kills. It's about objectives and working together instead of by yourself. So you mentioned that you don't... Uh... You don't get frustrated with new members, but uh, you know how often do you get new members, and what are their typical experience levels? We get new members a lot, and uh, I try to specifically play with the newer members, like and try to get them into the club and like it a lot. And usually, our retention rate's pretty high. I'd like to say because mo- I feel like most clubs you go to and you have like a meeting or whatever, and you like leave or you talk about stuff. But in our club, we're specifically. Um, out to talk to people and get people playing with each other. And, like, when you meet four new people every time you play a game, you're bound to make a friend, right? Right. And then you're bound to come back. 
All right, so uh, the last thing that I wanted to touch on was uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone really say, like, I started playing League of Legends and my life has been improved for the better. But what, what's that about? Uh, so a lot of people struggle because it, it, it can be a very addictive game. Um, you just have to make sure you uh, don't play it nonstop. I've known a lot of people. We've had members in the club that have played it nonstop and then it, like school didn't work out and just life didn't work out. So, But you just have to learn to stop <laughs> just like anything else, right? Any yeah. other game, anything, watching Netflix too much, you just got to learn when enough is enough and you have to get back to work. Awesome. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, let anyone know about the club? Um, no, just uh, one more time. We meet every Thursday in 1345 in the engineering building. It's the big lecture hall in the front. We go 7 to midnight or 1130 now, actually, because we started getting charged. Um, we have those three tournaments. Uh, the tournaments, uh, it does cost a small amount to get in, but it's definitely worth it because you can end up coming out with some prizes. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming in. This next club is a classic college game, Ultimate Frisbee. Right now I'm sitting down with Mike Giles, a captain and the media manager of the Ultimate Frisbee team here at MSU. How are you, Mike? I am good. So, uh, Ultimate Frisbee. Um, this is a college campus, so I, I know there's a lot of people here, here who do know what uh, Ultimate Frisbee is, but for those who don't, what is Ultimate Frisbee? It's a game that's similar to football in the case that you are trying to score in two separate end zones across uh, a, I think, 70-yard field, and but it also incorporates a lot of other sports like basketball and uh, kind of takes a bunch of different ideas from different sports and puts them together. The difference, I guess, but football would probably be the one that's mostly that most people could relate to just because of the, the way the field's set up. The only difference would be is that you can't run with the disc. So once you have the disc, you're stuck in that spot, and then you have to throw it again. Um, so a way to think about it is someone with the disc is like a quarterback, and then the person catching it is like a wide receiver kind of thing. And then you keep going until you score in an end zone, and the end zones are about 20 yards deep. So this is all played with a Frisbee, right? Yeah. This isn't your typical um, ball. How how does that work? Does it affect the game? Because you know, most other sports, soccer, basketball, they all use these these balls that are pretty uh, concrete as to how they their trajectory, but the Frisbee is very slow and it has strange trajectory. How does how does that play into things? Um, it plays into things just like you said, the speed of it, uh, depending on the wind and how good the player is. Like we've I've played with players that can really rifle a disc in if they want to. But I would say it might be one of the out of the sports I've played and I've played a lot of sports through high school and throughout middle school and stuff, is that the weather has probably the biggest impact on the sport that I've ever seen. <laughs> Just because the, you can literally change the way, like how much people score, and just the pace of the game by how windy it is, right. especially in the Midwest too. Yeah, that makes it seem like it would be unfair to be on certain sides. Yeah, it's not a big deal. I met I, one of our former players. Uh, he went to Arizona State University for graduate school. He started playing here, and then he he kind of continued it over there, and he they had a 
a game where they there was a, I think like 20 mile an hour winds, which is not usual for down there. And they're like, you need a handle because, or which handling is like someone who is gets priority kind of to get the disc. Um, and they're like, you need a handle because you're from the Midwest, <laughs> just because like the wind is a lot much of a factor up here than it is down south and everywhere else. I got it. How many how many people do you have in your club? We have so we have a B team as well. So with our team and their team, that's approximately uh I want to say about 40 people or so, maybe 40 to 50. And then the girls uh team is a little bit bigger. They're on kind of the verge of trying to split, but they have like another like 30 or 40. So, and all told it's about 90 to 110 people or so. So it's pretty big. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, do you guys compete? Yeah, so we go to tournaments every so every few weekends throughout the semester. Last week, last semester, we went to three tournaments, and that's generally about how much you would do. And that can be anywhere from South Bend to we were in Georgia in November and uh, anywhere around there. But in the spring, it's usually because of the weather. It's usually all down south somewhere. Um, but that's where everyone goes to play each other and that's kind of how it's set up so how do the how does how does the logistics of the game work how many people are on the field are there like positions yeah so i kind of mentioned earlier the handler spot handlers and cutters are the two main positions so the handlers are kind of like the like i said before the quarterbacks and the cutters are like the wide receivers and then you just take it up the field um, there's seven people on each side. So generally there's two main offenses, but I'm not going to bore you with kind of the details, but basically there's usually about two to three handlers and then, uh, four to five cutters. So, and then it's spread out depending on what offense you do. Um, there's differences. But... So how many is on each side? Seven. Seven. Mm-hmm. So what kind of people are, um, involved with ultimate Frisbee? I know, with with frisbee there tends to be more of a relaxed tone to it you know not a lot of like major athletes would play ultimate frisbee but you know what what do you guys get in the club and do you mean just in terms of the background of the students yeah yeah the students you know what kind of attitudes they have is this a hyper competitive sport or are they more relaxed i would say it's a i wouldn't say it's a hyper competitive like football or any like d1 sport necessarily but there is a side to it that's very competitive that uh, is very I would I would kind of uh, maybe compare it to like the top level teams in our college division would be like any sort of high school that's trying to win a state championship. Um, so it can get very competitive, and it's more it's getting bigger and bigger. So the more that happens, the better the athletes are. But we generally get a lot of uh, people that were played sports in high school that kind of want to continue that in college, but not have it too big of a priority and so like we have about two to three practices a week so it's not too consuming but it is does take time um but and then in terms of like majors and stuff we have a lot of engineers it's like an odd number of engineering students (laughs) do it and it kind of i mean it kind of makes sense because there's a lot of thinking that goes on in the game because you have to do everything between throwing catching all that and then you have to worry about the wind and all that like the trajectory of the disc how you throw it in that wind so um, do uh do ultimate players typically play other disc sports? I've I've been told of disc golf and things like that. Have you ever been involved in that? I 
play disc golf, but I don't pl- or I've played it, but I don't play because it ruins my ultimate throw. Really? Yeah. How's the, that? The disc is so much different the way it's uh, proportioned, like the plastic and how much it weighs that it really kind of, if you disc golf too much, you can really throw off your ultimate throw. So it would be a thing of like, after I get out of college, if I got more into that, it would probably be, I'm assuming, I've heard it's pretty easy to kind of go towards it. But then once you do that, you're kind of giving up the other side okay. somewhat, at least for me. There are definitely players that got into Frisbee from, or like got into ultimate from disc golf. But for the most part, the way the the perfect player for us to have coming in is if they have if they played ultimate before, that's great. But we like having someone who's just athletic because then we can kind of teach them because you can get in a lot of bad habits if you're not taught well um, in terms of throwing mechanics, especially. So someone who's athletic and coordinated is like a perfect person for us to have as a recruit. As far as throwing mechanics, like you just said, uh, obviously the frisbee can do some pretty strange things you know can you highlight just you know maybe a few common techniques so the main thing that people do badly and and I did this too when I started out is we're we're taught especially with football and baseball that it's usually mostly your arm when you throw in frisbee it's completely opposite it's all about the snap of the wrist that's why I like the forehand throw which um, is like a kind of like a tennis a tennis forehand Sort of, it's all about the snap of the wrist, and actually, tennis players actually can learn pretty well because they're taught to snap their wrist rather than using their whole arm. Um, the backhand obviously is more natural for most people, but it's the same thing. You need to snap your wrist really hard and then add arm. But what a lot of people will do is put the arm first, and then the it'll just come off like a knuckleball because uh, they don't have enough spin on it. It's all about the spin and how to control the spin in certain situations. Very cool. Yeah. All right. So if somebody's listening and they sound really interested, they want to get maybe involved or learn a little bit more, what can they do? Uh, so we have we just launched a website this past September, I think, uh, and it's the URL is msultimate.com. and then you can also find our Twitter. I think it's msu underscore arc arc. That's our team name. And then we also have our Facebook page, which is just Michigan State Ultimate, and you can like that. And we usually update those generally. Um, if you want to go even more, that we have a YouTube channel that's not that popular yet, but there's a our file, fall highlight video is on that. So if you want to kind of see what is what, what the way our team is and how it's kind of set up, you can look, go find that. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in, Mike. Yep. Thank you. Now we go back to Impact reporter Daniel Razel for an inside look at the Hammocking Club. When I'm walking around Michigan State's campus in the dead of winter, with the snow and slush covering my feet and the bitter wind howling in my face, I can hardly imagine how anyone can make something enjoyable out of this weather. The Hammocking Club of MSU proved me otherwise. I remember last winter, I was really, really stressed out. I'm like, I just want a hammock, but there's snow on the ground. That was Marissa Truppiano, vice president of the Hammocking Club. And I was hanging above the red cedar, like, and it was it was frozen. There was snow on the ground, but you can't keep me from my hammock. You just can't. <laughs> I met with her and two other e-board members from the group, President Matt Shalino and Treasurer Alex Valigura. The Hammocking Club began when founders Justin and Nate found a passion for hanging out, if you will, 
among the trees. However, local arborist groups were not happy. Our two founders, Justin and Nate, were hammocking on campus and an arborist came over and banned them from hammocking on campus because they said the strain on the trees um, would damage it and just cause a mess. So they can get a fine, anything like that. Um, so it was kind of started to kind of bring together those people that want a hammock on campus but technically can't. Um, and we're currently trying to change that rule. To get swinging with your own hammock adventures, Marissa covers the necessary starting materials. Obviously you want a hammock, so Eno and Trek Light Gear are both really great ones. You can find Eno up at Moose Jaw and then Trek Light Gear is online. Um, but you're also going to need straps and carabiners to kind of attach it to a tree. Um, but also something that's really nice in the winter is indoor hammock hooks, and they have those at Moose Jaw as well. So you just, obviously you can't do this in the dorm, but if you're in a house, um, you can kind of just drill it into the wall, and then you can hammock inside in the winter. Members of the MSU Hammocking Club can even get discounts from local outdoor gear businesses. We do get discounts at Moose Jaw um, here on, er, on Grand River, and we also get discounts from a company called Trek Light Gear, and we can get discounted hammocks for our members at very, very low prices, so it's really awesome. Um, you can only get these deals if you are a member, though. In addition to your basic hammock starting materials, Matt explains how to survive even in the harsh winter weather. Things you can get as accessories to hammocking, you get like under quilts, which is basically like a thermal blanket for you to sit in hammocks and stuff. You can put it underneath it. Yeah, when you go and you go on the websites for hammocking, there's like different types of hammocks. Most of us, we do like, what would you call them? Parachute style hammocks, so they're a stretchier, lighter fabric. But personally, I was more of a fan of Alex's indoor approach. I discovered that the hallway, my hallway in my dorm, is the perfect distance. So I've actually set up my hammock and connected it to two doorknobs in my hallway and hammocked there. Sure, I could throw my own hammock between two frozen snow-covered trees, just like Matt, Alex, or Marissa. But I think I'll just wait for that yellow thing in the sky to come back first. For more information on the Hammocking Club of MSU and how you can join, contact hammockingclubmsu at gmail.com. For Impact News, I'm Daniel Rizal. To wrap up the show tonight, we bring in the State of Fifths, a group from here at MSU, to talk about the world of acapellas. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now I'm joined with the State of Fifths, a uh, acapella group here at MSU. Welcome, everyone. Hey. Hey. It's good to be here. (laughs) All right, so why don't we just do, uh, everyone just introduce your names right over here. I am Mary Johnson. I am a fifth year here. Um, this is my second year in the group, and I'm a media and information major. Uh, my name is Gabe. Uh, I'm a junior this year studying supply chain management, and uh, I've been in the group for three years. Hey, I'm Joseph. I'm a sophomore, and I've been in the group for a year and a half, and I'm a marketing major. Awesome. All right, so acapellas. I think a lot of people have heard of um, acapellas, um, and I think a lot of people might think choir, something like that, but just so that we can like understand what we're talking about right now, could anyone maybe give like kind of like a working definition of an acapella? <laughs> you wanna? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so acapella music is basically just a group of singers together 
and without any sort of instruments behind you, you're using your voices and singing as well as creating vocal percussion to have like drum beats and um, a lot of the time you'll have your lower bass actually be like a stringed bass guitar. Yeah, we're basically just mimicking the instruments with our mm-hmm. voice. Okay, so it's like a it's like a band, but right, every yeah. instrument is voice. Yep, interesting. So is uh, a choir isn't the same then? So a choir, how how is that different? I guess. Well, I guess uh, choirs sometimes have accompanists with them. Like I guess when I was in high school, I know they had like pianos and you know other kind of stuff going on. Um, the vowels and tonation are very different too with choral music rather yeah. than kind of just the poppy kind of sound of most acapella music these days. Yeah, I think it's like the song, song selection is definitely a part of it. Um, mm. We sing like maybe different stuff than um, your traditional choir would probably sing. So. Uh, State of Fist is uh, a, uh, a group, an acapella group, and you perform, compete, both? Mm. How, how does that work? Um, well... Our group is primarily based around performing. We do gigs on campus as well as off campus. Um, recently, we've started getting involved with a lot of other acapella groups from around the country and going and opening for them and having them come in and open for us and kind of creating a wider community of acapella. Just um, there's already a very strong acapella community at Michigan State itself. So then taking it that step further and opening up and We've met awesome people, but uh, yeah, so we do a lot of gigs and stuff like that, and actually this, not this weekend, but the following weekend, we will be competing in ICCA, which is a national acapella competition, Mm. and if you've seen Pitch Perfect. It's a lot like International, yes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Pitch Perfect's like kind of It sums it up pretty well, Mm -hmm. minus the crazy commentators, I think. Yeah, no commentators. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so with this whole... Pitch Perfect thing. Um, I don't know if any listeners have seen this movie, but there's like yeah. this one kind of almost another world of people that are. It does. Are you telling me that that world is real? That there are a bunch of people who just only talk about singing all the time. It's one of those things. Yeah. I think once. <laughs> well, I, I, it's it's definitely a a hot topic, especially when you're in an acapella group and oh, yeah. you spend a lot of time, and those people end up being seriously your best friends and the people you spend the majority of your time with. So it's easy to fall into that, and then once you add the fact that you're thinking about ICCA and you're in kind of like that ICCA season which for us is basically just the month of January. But, I mean, you're waking up thinking about the music. Mm-hmm. You start singing it in your head. You're looking at all your choreo stuff, and then you you actually go to then rehearsal, and yeah. then you come home, and you're still just thinking and talking about what it is was what it was that you did. So Yeah, the rehearsal schedule is really heavy in the upcoming weeks here until ICCA because of just how challenging and just, like, so everybody needs yeah. to be like on the ball there because it's a competition, of course. You're just always striving to do your personal best at ICCA, and um, we are we're fortunate that we don't have to compete against other Michigan State groups this year. We get to travel to Bowling Green, Ohio, and mm-hmm. so it takes some of that pressure off that you don't feel this need to kind of outshine your friends. And it's always it becomes this really weird like you, it's you're not trying to compete against these people, but you're forced to. 
And it's um, cool to see the new talent, too, to get out there and see other groups perform. You learn from them. You always learn from the experiences by seeing other people perform, I think. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what is a typical recruit for this kind of thing? I mean, do you guys – do you guys uh, – are you actively looking for members like now or is it in the beginning of the year and what kind of people do you yeah. recruit? Um, I mean, we're always looking for new members, but um, usually we'll do the um, auditions um, once a year. This year and last year we did, <coughs> I'm sorry, um, two auditions, one at the beginning of the semester of the fall semester and one near the end of it. And really, I guess it just kind of depends on like um, who we're losing. You know, we have some people graduate at the semester, so we need to like fill those shoes pretty quickly. Um, especially just, you know, before uh, the ICCA season and everything. But, you know, we're always keeping our eyes out um, for people interested in singing. Um, obviously, the just like the beginning of the year is probably the biggest um, time for looking for new people just because mm-hmm. like the incoming freshmen will come out. Um, people who might have heard us of us at the end of last year, but just didn't like have a chance to try out before. Right. You know, they'll hear about it the next so year. So if you're so. out there listening and yeah. want to audition, <laughs> um, what is what is a typical because uh, you said there's like kind of like a little world there of people that are all talking about singing and things like that. What would you say the competition is like? What what level of competition and like who are you looking for as far as recruits? Do they need like a lot of singing experience or what? Um, yeah, I think. Um, at least, like, a, a little bit of experience, you know, is um, uh, better than none, obviously. Uh, but we've had, like, people who don't have um, vocal experience necessarily. Like, they weren't in choir, you know, growing up, going through high school, but they were in, like, band or orchestra or something. You know, they've just been around music, and they really like it, and maybe they sing on their own. And um, those people, you know, they come in our group, and they do really great things. We had a guy graduate uh, at the semester yeah, they can be the great soloist. Um, yeah, like he he yeah. he had no vocal experience before um, coming in. He had a few solos. Um, he had a solo during ICCA last year, um, and it's like one of our favorite songs to sing. You know, so yeah. So we yeah. take like just people based on how they audition, just mm-hmm. how they sound, and at it's, that moment. It's also kind of based off of the sound for that exact group. Right. So. Like, I auditioned three years ago and didn't get in the group. They weren't losing any girls, and maybe my sound didn't match perfectly to how that group sounded then, but then auditioned the next year and got in. So it's really kind of just at odds that your voice and your timbre and everything fits with the current exact group. And Yeah, in callbacks, we really test, like, blend with the rest of the group. We, like, have them sing with some of the current members at the callbacks so that we can get a good hear of what they would sound like in our group before they're actually in it with us. And you have to be a cool person, too, because, yeah, Personality's important. Not saying that we're super cool or anything. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, you can kind of hear it in the background right now. You got the rest of the crew out there Mm -hmm. practicing. So uh, Yeah, out there, yep. we're, We're on the radio. We play music, and you guys sing music. So why don't you guys... uh Pull them in here and give us a song. Sounds great. Here's the State of Fifths with Take Me to Church. My lover's got humor. She's a giggle at a funeral. Knows everybody's disapproval. I should have worshipped her sooner. If the heavens ever did speak, she's the last true mouthpiece. Every Sunday's getting more bleak, a fresh poison each week. 
We were born saying, you heard them say it. My church offers no absolute. She tells me worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. I was born sick, but I love it. Command me to beware. That's it for the show tonight. A special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our assistant news director, Daniel Rezel.
You can find this episode as well as all other episodes of Exposure on our website at impact89fm.org. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.